This program is made possible by BibleWayMedia.org, overseen by the Uloga Church of Christ in Uloga, Oklahoma. You're listening to Opening the Scriptures with Don Boyd. Welcome to our program today. This is Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ. I want to welcome you to Opening the Scriptures. Today we're going to continue in our studies in the book of First Thessalonians, and we are in the chapter 4 here of First Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5, the church is exhorted and warned in matters of practical Christian living. Now, these instructions that they receive are because the Holy Spirit knew what the Thessalonians needed. And Paul would know these things because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So first of all, in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians verses 1 through 8, there is the exhortation to holy living. First of all, we will find in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, a transition of subject matter. It says there, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. All right, from the Gospel Advocate Commentary, on page 64, we're going to find some things here that I want to read. It says, Paul beseeches them as a matter concerning himself and his interest in them. He exhorts them and their own duty in relation to Christ because they're Christians. Uh, the word furthermore, we find there at the first part of verse 1, refers to other matters that need to be addressed. Uh, the word is also translated as finally, the Greek word loipon, and Moulton's, <coughs> excuse me, Moulton's lexicon gives that the definition the accusative of general reference of loipos, which means as for the rest. So as for the rest here, Paul says, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus. They were, or they received the instructions of the gospel, and now they're taught to practice it. Now, the result of their practicing what is taught in the Word of God is that they are pleasing to God. I want to go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll look at three verses there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4 says, But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts, so they were taught the gospel. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, it says that you would walk worthy of God, who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. And then we look down at verse 15 also of chapter 2, speaking of the Jews there. It says, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and they are contrary to all men. So they weren't pleasing to God, but Paul wants them, the Thessalonians there, to be pleasing to God, that they would abound more and more in that. 
in Galatians chapter 1 verse 10, Paul says, For now, or do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. So he's just basically saying here in Galatians 1.10, if I was pleasing men, I would not be pleasing to God. But Paul wants the Thessalonians to walk as they should and please God. And then he said they were to abound more and more in their Christian walk. God's grace supplies the power. The love of Christ brings the obligation. And we are to live worthily by fuller and richer Christian life as we go through this life here on this earth. Raymond Kelsey in his book on 1 Thessalonians on page 83, I quote, He acknowledges the highly successful Christian living of the readers and yet urges them on to greater heights, unquote. So they were, they were successful in living as a Christian, but go on to greater heights, do more and more. As he says there, abound more and more. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of their personal ministry among them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 2. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. So Paul made sure that the Thessalonians knew that what he and Paul and, uh, excuse me, Timothy and Silas taught them was through the little Greek word dia, Jesus Christ. You know, it was through Christ. You know, we get our, our word diameter from this little Greek word dia, D-I-A. So it's through Christ that they were taught. The Thessalonians knew the instructions that they were given by Paul and Silas and Timothy, given to them to obey. So they knew what they were to be doing. Now in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, God's will for the Thessalonians is their sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, <clears throat> that ye should abstain from fornication. Sanctification comes from a Greek word, and this is Thayer's second definition. It says it means sanctification of heart and life. Now I want to quote Brother Kelsey again on page 83 of his work. God's will for the Thessalonians is their sanctification a condition in which they are holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, set apart for God and separated by life and conduct from the unbelieving world about them, unquote. You know, there in Thessalonica, as we've mentioned before, they would have been idol worshipers before. Their ancestors would have been idol worshipers as well. But now they are separated because they have obeyed the gospel. They're separated by their life and their conduct from that unbelieving world around them. And one specific thing he mentions there is they were to abstain from fornication. Abstain comes from a Greek word that Thayer defines as 
to hold oneself off, refrain, abstain. Uh, the word fornication, again, Thayer's definition, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, lesbianism, intercourse with animals, etc. So they were to abstain from these various sins that are included in fornication. Robertson's word pictures off of Esword makes this quote concerning that verse. Pagan religion did not demand sexual purity of its devotees, the gods and goddesses being grossly immoral. Priestesses were in the temples for the service of the men who came, unquote. Well, of course, the gods and goddesses that they worshipped were grossly immoral because they were made in the image of man. They were made up in the image of man. They weren't in the image of God. That is for sure. So they did not demand sexual purity of their followers. Well, Paul tells the Thessalonians to practice sexual purity. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, 4 says that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. All right, possess our vessel. Our vessel is talking about our bodies. We all dwell in our bodies. We should know how to possess that body. We need to keep ourselves pure, uh, sanctified, set apart, in honor, you know, not dishonor from being sexually immoral. And we are to be holy and keep our bodies in subjection. In Romans chapter 6, verse 19, Romans 6, 19, Paul says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness, and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members as servants to righteousness unto holiness. Of course, the Romans, they were probably worshiping the same gods that the Thessalonians were worshiping there, maybe Roman style instead of Greek style or whatever there, but they had lived in uncleanness. And uh, sin unto sin, iniquity unto iniquity, one sin leads to another sin. But now he's saying, you're a child of God. Yield your members, yield your body as a servant of to righteousness unto holiness. Be holy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So right there, Paul is saying, I keep my body under subjection. Uh, the little phrase keep under there means to beat black and blue whenever you look up the Greek translation or the translation of the Greek word there. So he says, I have to beat my body, you know, figuratively, not literally, but to keep it in subjection to his spirit. Now, Young's literal translation says of 1 Corinthians 9, 27, but I chastise my body and bring it into servitude 
lest by any means, having preached to others, I myself may become disapproved. So we are to chastise our bodies and bring our bodies into servitude. Servitude to Christ. Now, knowing how to keep our bodies pure is not a temporary impulse. It's a constant process. Constantly keep our bodies pure. We're to use our bodies in sanctification and honor. Now, sanctification comes from the Greek word that Strong's defines as properly purification. That is the state purity. We are to be pure. And then they def he defines honor, the Greek word translated honor, this way. A value. That is money paid or concretely and collectively valuables. By analogy, esteem, especially of the highest degree or of the dignity itself. We are to live dignified lives. We are, we are to be valuable, not only to others, but to God and ourselves as well in keeping our bodies pure. Now in 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, Paul gives the opposite of sanctification and honor. In other words, he gives the state of a person who is a slave to his lust, a slave to the desires of his body. 1 Thessalonians 4, 5. He says, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. So in the opposite of sanctification and honor, we have the lust of concupiscence. Lust comes from a Greek word that Thayer defines this way. And in the New Testament, in a bad sense, depraved passion, vile passions. So that is what lust is here, depraved or vile passions. Now, concupiscence. The Greek word there, Thayer defines as desire, craving, longing, desire for what is forbidden or lust. So don't be living in this state of that individual who's a slave to his lust, a slave for desiring what is forbidden. And this is the condition of most of the world. In Romans 1, 24 to 27, Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to 27, you see most of the world. Speaking specifically of the Gentiles here, but our world today is following the same path. It says, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, lesbianism in other words. Now verse 27. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men working with men that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. Your homosexuality. 
But then you could go on and read the rest of those verses there in Romans chapter 1 and see so many other sins that the world at that time was involved in and the world in our day is involved in as well. Now, I want to, want to read this to you. This is from Robertson's Word Pictures, and Robertson's Word Pictures was published from 1930 to 1933. You know, we're looking 90 years ago. I want to read this quotation. One of the reasons for the revival of paganism in modern life is professedly this very thing that men wish to get rid of the inhibitions against licentiousness by God, unquote. It was going on in the 30s, it's going on now. People don't want to be inhibited in their lifestyle that they want to live. They don't want to be inhibited by what God says. And that's why there's this rise in paganism. And we see that in our day as well. Now in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 6, Paul says, do not go beyond the limits of a sanctified life. 1 Thessalonians 4, 6. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. All right, in the context here of this verse, we're talking about the matter of fornication or adultery here. Go beyond is to transcend, and this is excuse me, Strong's definition of the Greek word. To transcend, that is figuratively to overreach. Do not overreach. Defraud, to be covetous. That is, by implication, implication to overreach. And again, that is Strong's definition of the Greek word. So do not go defraud his brother in any matter. Uh, the word matter, Strong's defines that Greek word that's translated matter as this. That which has been done, a deed and accomplished fact. Going back to Robertson's word pictures, I want to quote that text once more. Modern men and women need to remember that God is the avenger for sexual wrongs both in this life and the next, unquote. And remember that was written in the 1930s. Still going on today. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Galatians 6, 7 and 8. Paul wrote, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And in Colossians chapter 3, verse 6. Colossians 3, verse 6. It says, For which things sake the wrath of God cometh upon or on the children of disobedience. So don't be defrauding. The Thessalonians had been forewarned about this when Paul was in Thessalonica. Again, let's go back and read chapter 4, verse 6. 
that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. The word testified there comes from a Greek word that Strong's defines as to attest or protest earnestly. So they were really trying to drive this point home. Don't get into fornication. Don't get into adultery. Don't defraud your brother in the matter that way. And God does not call us to live like pagans. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Uncleanness there comes from a Greek word that Thayer defines as, in a moral sense, the impurity of lustful, luxurious, profligate living. Uh, profligate there, wasteful living, but lustful and luxurious. He didn't call us to live that way. He called us to holiness. The Greek word there, there says, means consecration and purification. We're to live consecrated lives and pure lives. And how does God call us? We understand that's by the gospel. That's what the scriptures say. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, 2 Thessalonians 2.14, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 2.12, he says that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Again, that was 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. Now, in the context of sexual activities, all sexual activities are to be done within marriage. Hebrews 13, 4. Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. That fornication, fornicators, whoremongers there. Again, go back to the definition. You know, kind of in our words today, premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexuality, or animal sex right there, sex with animals. And, you know, we should walk in harmony in the purpose we were called. And that's sanctification. Now, Paul's conclusion to the truths that he just wrote there in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, his conclusion to that matter is given in verse 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, 8 says, He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit, so the person that rejects the teaching that Paul had just written, he or she is rejecting and despising God, not Paul. Again, quoting from Robertson's word pictures. Paul sees this clearly and modern atheists see it also. In order to justify their licentiousness, they do not hesitate to set aside God, unquote.
Well, not only did modern atheists do that in the 1930s, they're doing it now. And not only atheists are doing that. People who claim to be churchgoers, they justify their licentious lifestyle by setting aside God as well. You ever heard anybody just say, well, I'm living that way, but God's grace will cover that. No, it won't cover that. If you want to live a life that's pleasing to God, then your sins will be forgiven and not in any other way. Paul connects the Holy Spirit with sanctification in several scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, 1 Corinthians 6.11, it says, And such were some of you. And what is he talking about? Let's go read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and beginning in verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. You're looking at homosexuality there in that last part nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, verse 11, and such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So there Paul connects the Holy Spirit with sanctification. But he also says there, they were washed. How were they washed? The watery grave of baptism is where they were washed, and that's where they contacted the blood of Christ. Romans chapter 6 tells us that. Romans chapter 6 Verses 3 and 4, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We cannot walk in newness of life unless we are raised from that watery grave of baptism. Now let's look at another verse where Paul connects the Holy Spirit with sanctification. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. 1 Peter 1.2. Peter also ties the Holy Spirit and sanctification together. 1 Peter 1, 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit and to obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace be multiplied. So right there, through sanctification of the Spirit. Uh, Global Music in the 1988 Denton Lectures on page 129 and he's quoting from the American Standard Version there. And I quote him. Giveth, that's the word that he's using there in the American Standard Version. Giveth is from a word that shows continuous action. Therefore, God is here made known as the God who continues to give the Holy Spirit. 
The teaching is that the Holy Spirit continues to dwell in the Christian and therefore every child of God is to remain holy. Now, the literal translation of the Bible translates 1 Thessalonians 4, 8 in this way. Therefore, the one that despises does not despise man but God, even he giving his Holy Spirit to us. That's that present tense, that constant giving. Now we have in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 to 12, exhortation to brotherly love. Verse 9 of chapter 4, brotherly love. But as touching brotherly love, ye have, ye, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Brotherly love there from the Greek word Philadelphia. Thayer, second definition of that word. In the New Testament, the love which Christians cherish for each other as brethren. Uh, Brother Robert Taylor Jr. in the 1988 Dent Lectures on page 140 states this. Brotherly love stands in marked contrast to the concupiscence and fornication. Such constituted lust and lascivious action. This beautiful word Philadelphia encourages pure, wholesome love in attractive action. And the Thessalonians didn't need, uh, unquote, and the Thessalonians didn't need any further instructions on brotherly love. They were already doing it. They were taught of God to love one another. Now the word love there is agapao. Uh, Thayer defines that of persons to welcome, to entertain, to be fond of, to love dearly. And the Thessalonians abounded in their love for one another. 2 Thessalonians 1.3, 2 Thessalonians 1.3, Paul says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity, that's the word love there, of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. Now, the love the Thessalonians, or of the Thessalonians, was not just for the local congregation. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 10, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 10, says, And indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. Well, Macedonia would include Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi, any other congregations in that area. And Paul exhorts the Thessalonians, you know, your love is there, but keep on increasing. Do it more and more. You know, we should never be satisfied with our level of achievement wherever we're at spiritually. Continue to abound, continue to grow, continue to excel in the Lord's work. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, Paul gives matters that are the fruit of brotherly love. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. He says, And that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. So first he says, study to be quiet. The word study there comes from a Greek word that Thayer's second definition is this, 
to strive earnestly. Make it one's aim. And then strive to be quiet or study to be quiet. Thayer's definition for the Greek word there is to lead a quiet life. Said of those who are not running hither and thither, but stay home and mind their business. Uh, notice the paradox here. Strive to be quiet. Strive earnestly. Make it your aim to lead a quiet life. Brother Robert Taylor, again, in the Denton, 1988 Denton Lectures on page 145, says this, and I quote, they were admonished to be of a quiet, reserved, and controlled mind. They were to be ambitious and pursuing tranquility of soul, unquote. And then do your own business. In other words, take care of your own affairs. Don't be take, trying to take care of the affairs of others. 1 Peter 4.15 says this, 1 Peter 4.15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. You see where busybodies, the group that busybodies are in, murderers, thieves, evildoers, they're busybodies. What's a busybody? Someone that's, uh, the definition, a restless, troubled person. And they have the tendency to get into the affairs of others. And then he says, work with your own hands. God has always expected mankind to work. Started back in Genesis 2.15. Genesis 2.15 says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Put him to work. You know, a restless spirit and the desire to interfere in the affairs of others that leads to the neglect of a person's own affairs. We need to be busy in our own affairs. In Paul's next letter to the Thessalonians, chapter, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, he reminds the Thessalonians what is to be done with someone who will not work. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. All right, this is nothing new. Paul had already commanded that to be done. You know, if they're not going to work, don't eat. And we're not talking about someone who is unable to work. We're talking about someone who has an able body and they're mooching and living off of other people. They'll don't even feed them. Let them. When they get hungry, they'll start working. In 1 Thessalonians 4.12, Paul says, walk honestly toward the unbelievers. 1 Thessalonians 4.12, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, that ye may have lack of nothing. These are those who are not members of the church, but they scrutinize the lives of those who claim to be Christians. Everybody's looking at your life. If you claim to be a Christian, people are looking at you and they want to see what kind of a life you are living. Uh, Raymond Kelsey on page 95 of his book says this, and I quote, By abounding in brotherly love, by maintaining a calm spirit, by giving attention to their own affairs, and by working with their own hands, will win the respect of their unbelieving neighbors, unquote. 
do what you're supposed to do. Live as a Christian, in other words. By doing these things, the Thessalonians will be respectable members of society instead of parasites mooching off of others. Now in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, there are instructions concerning the second coming of Christ. All right, first of all, verse 13. What about departed saints? 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. Paul says, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. All right, Paul changes the subject at this point to the second coming of Christ and some of the things that are going to take place. Well, the Thessalonian brethren apparently were concerned about the faithful who died before the Lord's return. They were fearful about that. They were concerned about that. Would they, would they miss their reward? Did they come out of paganism and suffer persecution for nothing? <coughs> you know, this, this thinking's going to bring sorrow. The word sorrow there comes from a Greek word that Thayer defines as second definition, to affect with sadness, to cause grief, to throw into sorrow. And Paul wanted the brethren to have knowledge about what was going to happen. Well, he says there, first of all, they, those that are asleep. Sleep is a gentle figure for death. Uh, Jesus used that in John 11, 11 to 14. John 11, 11 to 14. says, These things said he, after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may wake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spoke of his death. But when they thought that he had spoken of taking rest in sleep, then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. But he calls it sleep. And we can have hope in our resurrection because Jesus was raised from the dead, Acts 17, 31. Acts 17, 31 says, Because he, that being God the Father, hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, that being Jesus, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead, and he will raise us from the dead. And then he mentions those which have no hope. Who are those that have no hope? 2 Thessalonians 1.8. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, they have no hope, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they have no hope either. The hopelessness of the heathen is seen in the Old Testament as well. Look at Leviticus 19.27 and 28. Leviticus 19, 27, and 28 says, Ye shall not round the corners of your heads, neither shall thou mar the corners of thy beards. Ye shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. That's those that had no hope, and they were doing all these things. You know, 
rounding the corners of their head, barring the corner of their beards, cutting in their flesh, printing marks upon their bodies. In Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2 also. Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2. Ye are the children of the Lord your God. Ye shall not cut yourselves, nor make any baldness between your eyes for the dead, for thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. And the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. You can have hope. They have no hope, but you do. <coughs> the pagans in Mo Athens mocked Paul when he taught about the resurrection of the dead there in Acts 17.32. Acts 17.32. And when they heard the re of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear thee again of this matter. But they, some mocked. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. But the foundation of truth is that Jesus died and rose again. 1 Thessalonians 4.14. 1 Thessalonians 4.14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him? Brother Robert Taylor again, 1988 Denton Lectures, page 159, quote, He was saying that since the death and resurrection of the Lord are true, God will bring those who sleep in Jesus with him, unquote. And it is through being a child of God that death loses its sting. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 57. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 57. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul there in 1 Thessalonians 4, he's referring to Christ as going to bring the spirits of the departed saints from paradise out of the Hadean world in paradise with him at his second coming. Then, if we are dead, we'll be reunited with our bodies, but those bodies are going to be immortal. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 53. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 53. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. No, we're not all going to be dead. There are going to be some alive when Christ comes back. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. What's it going to be like? What's this body going to be like? John said in 1 John 3, 2, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, that means Jesus, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So we don't know what this body's going to be. We know it's going to be immortal, but we're going to find out. We're going to find out. And then Paul says there's no need to worry or sorrow, no need to sorrow about the departed saints. They're blessed. 1 Thessalonians 
1 Thessalonians 4.15 For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. So what Paul is saying, he says, it's by the word of the Lord. In other words, it's absolutely authoritative. It's absolutely trustworthy. Now, if we're alive when Christ returns, we're not going to have any advantage over the faithful who have already passed from this life. The word prevent there comes from a Greek word that there defines this way. To come before, precede, anticipate. So we're not going to precede them. We're not going to come before them. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. Well, let's look at the events of the second coming that Paul gives in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now before I go any further, notice, and we'll look at more of the verse here, but look at the last part of verse 17. We're going to meet, them in the, meet the Lord in the air. He's not coming to set foot on earth. We're going to meet him in the air, and so shall we be ever with the Lord. He's never coming to step foot on this earth. He did it once. He's not going to do it again. Now, Jesus himself will descend from heaven. Uh, we look over in the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Jesus himself is coming. That's what the angels there told the apostles in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascended. <clears throat> Acts chapter 1 verses 9 through 11. It says, And when he, that being Jesus, had spoken these things while they, that being the apostles, beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which said, also, or also said, You men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. <clears throat> so he's coming back. Jesus is right now at the right hand of God ruling over his kingdom, the church. Acts 2, 32 and 33. Peter there in his sermon that day said, This Jesus hath God raised up whereof we are all our witnesses. Therefore being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26, Paul here says, Then cometh the end. The end? The end of the world. The end of time. When he, that being Jesus, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, 
when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign. Jesus must reign. He is reigning now. He's not coming back to reign a thousand years. He's reigning now from heaven. Again, verse 25, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Death will be destroyed at the resurrection. His appearance will be sudden and visible to all, Revelation 1.7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. John specifically is writing about the dead saints. But everyone will be raised from the dead at the same hour. John 5, 28 and 29. Jesus said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. We're going to be raised at the same time. Now, he says, Jesus will descend with a shout. Robertson's word picture says this, and I quote, Old word here only in the New Testament from keluo to order, command, military command. Christ will come as conqueror, unquote. And it says, with the voice of the archangel. Uh, Michael is the only archangel mentioned in the Bible in Jude verse 9 where it says, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. So Michael is the archangel. And angels have a part in the second coming. Second Thessalonians 1.7, again, Second Thessalonians 1.7, And you are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So they're coming. In Matthew 13, 39 to 42, Jesus gives a little bit more of what the angels will be doing there in the explanation of the parable of the tares. Matthew 13, 39 to 42. He says, The enemy that sowed them, the tares, is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So the angels have a part in the final day. And then it says, with the trump of God. In the Old Testament, the trumpet and the shout were often together. One example is Joshua 6, 5. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city shall fall down flat and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. You think about how startling the sound of that trumpet will be on the last day. And he says, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Paul assures the Thessalonians that the faithful will rise from the dead. 
before the living saints' bodies are changed. And after the saints arise from the dead, then these saints who are still alive will be reunited with those who have already passed. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 1 Thessalonians 4.17 Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we be ever be with the Lord. That reunion's going to be in the clouds. We're going to meet the Lord there, and that meeting is never-ending. We shall be in the Lord's presence in heaven forever. Revelation 22, 3 and 4. Revelation 22, 3 and 4. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. Jesus will never set foot on this earth again. 2 Peter 3, 10 to 12. 2 Peter 3, 10 to 12. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of the God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The elements, oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, helium, all dissolved. And then the comfort we get from God's word, 1 Thessalonians 4.18. <coughs> Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. The Thessalonians could have true comfort knowing that their brethren who were asleep in Christ would be raised from the dead. They would receive their eternal reward. Rather than grieving over the dead as those who have no hope, they can have comfort one for another knowing what will take place at the second coming of Christ? Jesus gives further assurance. John 14, 1 to 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, we see the exhortation for purity in our lives as we strive to please God. We see the reason for pure Christian living, and that's the second coming of Christ. If we are faithful, we will receive the great reward of eternal life that God has promised to his children. So the question becomes, are you ready for that day? So again, this is Blue Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ, and thank you for being with us, and we look forward to having with you with us next time. When you're in Moody, Missouri, you're invited to visit the Moody Church of Christ, located on Highway E in Moody, Missouri. The congregation there meets on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for Bible class, 11 a.m. for worship, and then again at 6 p.m. for Sunday evening worship. They also meet at 6 p.m. on Wednesday night for Bible study. We thank you for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this program. 
You can find out more about Byway Media by visiting us at bywaymedia.org. You can also find us on several uh, social media platforms now. You can find us not only on Facebook, but you can also can find us on Tumblr. You can also find us on the Twitter alternative known as Telegram and on the Facebook alternative known as MeWe. We hope you enjoy this program. We hope you will share with others. And as always, we thank you for listening.